What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. The labor market is still strong. Bank of America says so is the consumer. But two big retailers today reporting the opposite. While manufacturing points to a recession and inflation is falling fast if you look at real-time data. So are we getting a rate pause or not? We'll debate and look at where to find opportunities in this market. And speaking of opportunities, could Dollar General be one of them? That stock plunging 20% right now on a lousy report. But one analyst says don't count them out. The stock is a buy, and he makes his case ahead. And the great de-stocking. That's how Goldman's Jeff Curry described what's been happening in the energy market. He also says he was wrong on prices so far, but the long-term bull thesis remains intact. He joins us live ahead. Before that, though, let's get a quick look at the markets with stocks near session highs right now. The Dow swinging more than 400 points so far today. It's currently up 218. Uh, the low was minus 204. The Nasdaq, again, the outperformer, adding 1.2%. It's back above 13,000. The S&P at 4220. Chinese tech seeing some nice gains. The KWeb China Internet ETF up more than 5%, finally on track to snap that eight-week losing streak. Baidu, JD.com, PDD Holdings, Pinduoduo, all among the leaders in the Nasdaq today. And retail, very much a mixed bag. One notable outperformer is Chewy, whose shares are now up almost 26 percent. Best day ever on surprisingly strong customer growth. So the consumer, while I guess not buying any other kinds of goods, are still spending on their pets. And Nordstrom is also worth noting. Still up a respectable 3 percent after its first quarter sales topped expectations. They also reiterated their full year outlook. Very different story than Macy's today. Macy's, though, has almost entire. Look, no, it's gone green. Um, it was down 13% when it first crossed this morning on the wires uh, with that lowered guidance. But look, much better tone as we move throughout the afternoon. We'll have more on the retail trade ahead. Meantime, Philly Fed President Patrick Harker speaking now. Steve Leisman has the headlines. Steve. Thanks very much, Kelly. Uh, Philly Fed President Patrick Harker saying we are close to the point where we can hold rates in place. Just a note, yesterday he talked about skipping saying skipping was not holding, that they could come back and hike again. But today he's talking about close to a point where they could hold rates. He says there are promising signs that Fed rate hikes are working. The economy, he says, remains relatively healthy amid those rate hikes. He expects inflation to fall to 3.5% this year, 25 in 2024, and meet the Fed's 2% target in 2025. Unemployment, he says, will rise to 4.4% this year. That would be a full percentage point higher. I want to take a look, Kelly, uh, for purposes of the conversation we're about to have um, at the probabilities. And you can see here we flipped on a dime this week. We started off 70-30 in favor of a cut. We're now 70-30 in favor of a hold. However, we have... Uh, pushed ahead, I guess, our expectations. Here's what July looks like. You can see that there's a 40% probability there when it comes to the possibility of a hold. And then uh, what is that? 47% for a hike and even 13% looking for 50 basis points. So they've put it ahead. And we'll see if that remains the case um, after Harker speaks and all the other folks that have been out there, Kelly. So Harker's hold, is that more dovish than a skip? I, I think so. I this. think so. I will point out that my producer, Betsy Spring, does does point out that yesterday's remarks were not scripted. Today's were. Interesting. 
So I don't know if he wants to upgrade his skip to a hold or if it was just off the top of his head. Typically, when they talk about these things, they think about their words very carefully, and we read them carefully. I don't want to get too overly sure. linguistically geeky about this stuff, but in any event, he is saying hold today after being close to that point, and he said skip yesterday, not a pause. And the Dow is still up 209. Steve, stay with us. Sure. Let's dive a little deeper into the dueling economic data and whether or not the Fed is winning the fight against inflation. Joining me at now, Aswath Demoter and his professor of finance at New York University Student School of Business. And Stefan Rust is CEO of Trueflation, which uses blockchain technology to deliver real-time measures of inflation. Welcome to you both. Stefan, I just want to start with you because when your gauge fell below 3% this week, or maybe it was last week, it garnered a lot of headlines. So explain exactly how this works and what it's telling us. So basically, we use fresh data. Um, we aggregate some 18 million items that we track daily. And so we just use that uh, from and take a modern technology-based approach so that the data that we use is actually fresh in the calculation. The critics would say your data is high beta. <laughs> in other words, that when prices are rising, as you know, we look at your data a year ago, when the CPI was 9%, you had 12. Now that yep. the CPI is down to, I don't know, 4.5%, you have 3. I mean, is, that, is, that, is it basically just overcorrecting on the, on the up and down inflection points? Well, we don't think so. We obviously think our data is, is taking a more accurate calculation. We're including 15 million items versus just taking 80,000 items, which the Bureau of Labor and Statistics review and track manually with 477 employees. And so we just believe that we're just slightly more accurate. And based on the stress testing that a lot of Wall Street firms put us through, we actually are some three, in some cases, up to six months ahead of where the Fed is. One more question, and then I want to bring in Stephen Oswath. But when I when you look into the kind of the, the roots of this project, it came out of the crypto world, and it, it has this almost inherent expectation of dollar debasement and, um, you know, inflation. I mean, it, maybe I'm wrong to kind of read into that. Are you yourself surprised that your reading is posting a sub 3 percent? I'm not sure that's where you thought this project was headed. I mean, I never thought this project would get as much traction as we had anticipated. We launched this. I just when we first started, inflation was transitory. It was never going to happen. And if you look what happened in the last 10 years, we printed more money than we did over the last century. And so that is had to include and incur, and incur some sort of inflationary impact. And so I felt we needed to have some sort of independent source of truth. And that's what we started to work on and build out. And today we now track more items than I can actually keep track of. Um, we really just put that and let the computers and the algorithms and take course and do the calculations, which by the way, are fully transparent. Our methodology is documented, has been tested, and the ratios are also tested and sure. transparent and visual. So anybody can see the weighting of the data and the actual subcategories under the 12 categories that feed up into the true CPI, as we call it. And Steve, I just wanted to make the point that the Fed itself has a version of this. It's called the Cleveland Fed Nowcast. And they try to take basically daily fuel prices along with a few other things, too. And that's telling us that June 
PCE and CPI could be barely above 3%. So it's actually consistent with what Truflation's data is saying. Sure. And and if he's created a better mousetrap, we're all going to flock to it to catch the mice. That's for sure. I had one very quick question for Stefan, and I know we want to get to Oswald in there, but Stefan, are you capturing services in there? Sorry, I can't hear that. Are you Am capturing services for? inflation? Yeah, we count for services as well, yeah. Okay, because your, your index looks a lot more like the goods index in the CPI than it does the overall index, which includes services. Let me bring in Oswath on that note. And your uh, recent slide deck, Oswath, has been absolutely making the rounds on Wall Street because, listen, people are totally always following your valuation calls, and I want to talk about NVIDIA in a moment. But on the inflation point, you're actually quite hawkish right now. So at a moment when the kind of Fed consensus seems to be moving towards a skip or a, a pause, you know, maybe, um, you're a little bit more concerned about kind of the inflation GD coming out of the bottle, so to speak. So I just wanted you to kind of explain that a little bit. Now, I think the truth is there's good news coming out about inflation right now, but our history with inflation is it's stubborn. It doesn't go away that easily. And in many ways, the worst thing the Fed can do is step back too soon and then have inflation come back because the next time around, it's going to be even more painful. No, but I think that the good news about inflation is 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 out there. The question is, will it persist or will there be a you know some kind of a bounce back in inflation? We don't know yet, and I don't think the Fed does as well. And I don't like the way the Fed is playing games around this. I mean, I think the Fed should be like children. The less you hear from them, the better off you are. And having Fed, you know, uh, Fed people going around saying things about what they will do, I don't think helps the market in any way. So when you look at things, you know, I mentioned the Nowcast, I mentioned the Truflation Project, I mean, all these different things. Is it possible that this, in, that, that this inflation actually will be more transitory, especially if the economy starts to weaken considerably in the coming months? Oh, it's definitely possible. And I think that's that, that, that I think everybody accepts it. The question, though, is, I mean, possible doesn't mean it's certain. So as long as the Fed feels that there is a probability, a significant probability that inflation can come back, it behooves the Fed to act against it. So my worry is if the Fed steps back and inflation comes back in August, September, October, then we repeat this whole process we went through over the last year and a half again. And that pain is not worth repeating. So I, I, would, I would rather that the Fed hang in there, do what needs to be done to feel that inflation is behind us, than jump too soon and say, OK, we're going to pause and maybe inflation <clears throat> be defeated. Steve, so as we think about what could kind of power inflation from here, the only thing that comes to mind now that we're pulling back on the Fed, we pulled back on the fiscal mostly, is the labor market. So, right. you know, OK, Wages maybe can can kind of get us there, but uh, the challenge, I mean, we'll talk about the labor market a little bit later on. It doesn't look as strong, especially on the compensation front, as it did maybe a year ago. No, they revised away some of the hourly, real hourly compensation in the uh, productivity report this morning. The uh, ADP wages uh, data that has come down, it came down two ticks to 6.5 percent. Um, and the Blanchard uh, uh, Bernanke paper suggested that Wages were not a big part of the initial impulse of inflation, but they now will become it because the goods and the supply chain stuff is fading away. Um, and that is the thing that uh, 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 Powell is focused on. It's why I asked Stefan if there was, and I'm interested, maybe I'll call him later, and see if there's a special services index because that's the thing that Powell seems most focused on, this idea of services 
core services, ex-housing is the thing that he's interested in. That has not been behaving very well. It's been, as Oswald said, kind of stubborn. And, and I, I would just raise this other thing, which is that economists don't really like to talk about this, but there's a huge behavioral aspect to the inflation that worries me. And Barkin has been all over this idea. The idea that you somehow crossed this threshold, whereas before the conversation between the buyer and the supplier was, are you out of your mind raising prices? Go back and check it again. And we've now in a different milieu, I guess is the best way to say it, where, oh, it's only 5% this year. That's great. I'll take it. And there's no pushback. So we've changed this thing. Or, we've opened the flood, the behavioral floodgates of yeah. accepting price increases. Or I would mention our, our producer, Chelsea, who's going to get married, has a rider in her contract that says it, it, the price will increase with CPI. I can't remember the last time. Okay, so that's now it's Chelsea's fault is it, the problem. It, she right. accepted that rider. And that's I said, part I said of she should have thing. used the PCE or demanded that one instead. Um, Stefan, let me just give you one last chance. If you can speak to Steve's point, whether it's on services or maybe based on some of your more real-time data in the housing market, um, do you see more disinflationary real-time pressures in those areas of the economy? So we actually see the inflation actually coming down a little bit. We haven't actually predicted what the BLS will announce later this month. Um, but what we have seen is that it has sort of plateaued a little and actually a slow uptick. Gas prices have moved up. Um, gas is obviously huge for all the supply chain, for transportation, as well as, um, I mean, less heating, but now more cooling maybe. Um, and then you're seeing the same around housing market. The housing market has bottomed out and, and maybe even picking up a little slowly. And so that will sort of inflation will be around as as we just heard from the professor that that's going to be the case. Um, we don't think inflation is going to weigh. It's hard to go away. And with what's happening around the whole deglobalization, the onshoring of manufacturing, now the cost of capital associated with it, the time to build out that new infrastructure, all of those are going to lead to continuous investment, continuous capital requirement, and increased cost associated with that, where you're taking out economies of scale, hmm. you're taking out from a manufacturing perspective, from an R&D perspective. Our saving grace is technology, is blockchain, decentralized finance, that is uh, you know, reducing the cost of in the, in the, you know, stages in the middle or middlemen. And you have equally AI. All of a sudden, we're automating a lot of features, increasing productivity yeah. per unit um, out there. So that's sort of our view. What is the Fed going to announce? We have a Twitter spaces where we'll be announcing our sort of outlook in terms of what's coming closer to the time, because we're still 14 days away. Sure. And we've just focused on now casting very similar to the Cleveland Fed does. All right. Stefan and Steve, thank you both. Really interesting stuff. We appreciate it. Oswald, stick around for just a moment. My next guest says the inflation and macro confusion comes down to the bifurcation we're seeing between Wall Street companies and Main Street ones because of their different lines of business they tend to be in. Joining us now is Julie Beal, portfolio manager at Kane Anderson Rudnick and a CNBC contributor. Julie, it's great to see you. And you're kind of saying, listen, you know, the barber shop, you know, these kinds of, of kind of mom and pops are not as much the kind of things we hear from when major companies report, but they're a really important part of the economy. Yeah, they're, they're the majority of the employment in the U.S. economy is in these small and medium-sized businesses. And it makes sense, right? You don't need a lot of capital if you're a lawyer 
or a law firm, but you do if you are a manufacturing firm. So it makes sense that these are publicly traded businesses. And I think sometimes we lose sight of that because we're so fixated on you know, global themes like what's happening in AI or what's happening with onshoring and on offshoring. So I think it, we lose sight of that, but it creates a little bit of cognitive dissonance in, in investors' minds of like, how is the economy really doing? I, it's hard to really gauge. One thing that it seems that you guys kind of agree on is that, well, or maybe, Julia, I should ask you, do you think that this is a kind of environment where it favors the big getting bigger and, and kind of investment-wise and so on or, or, or not? You know, I actually think it, it really depends. Certain themes are going to be really beneficial for larger firms because they have the resources to implement them. So AI, I think, is a great example where the big get bigger because you really need a lot of resources in order to make that technology work. But as a small and mid-cap investor, there are plenty of businesses that have very strong franchises in a specific niche, and they're able to execute really well on them even in a recession. And Aswath, I'll turn to you on that because everyone was talking about your NVIDIA move. Um, is it correct to say that after the massive run, have you sold all of it or just pared it back? I sold half my holding. I mean, I, I think that um, you know, I'll hold off on the other half. But I, I mean, let's, uh, let's set the stage. This has been an amazing company. The reason I've held it is because uh, I call it my opportunistic chip maker. It seems to find every opportunity in the market and find a way to cater to it, whether it's crypto, whether it's gaming, and now with AI, it almost is always seems to be the first in line to be able to take advantage of it. And that can't be accidental. That said, though, I mean, the run-up has been just so astonishing that I, I cannot in good conscience hold on to it and call myself a value investor. <laughs> For the market overall, Aswath, you're saying you think this is a reversion to the 2012 to 2021 market. Is that a good thing? It, I don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. It is what it is. I mean, the reality is of the $3.1 trillion in market cap added to the U.S. equities this year, $2.8 trillion of that has come from large tech companies. And that is pretty much the pattern we saw through 2012 through 21 is the bulk of the rise in market cap of U.S. equities has come from big tech companies. So I don't know whether this is a reflection of how economies are evolving increasingly towards those tech companies or whether this is a market aberration, but it is what it is. And I think we need to accept that and start. I mean, when I see people complaining about the fact that the market is top heavy and that 60% of stocks are down or 70% of stocks are down, that has been the phenomenon we've had to face for much of the decade. It's not just 2023. And maybe we need to start to adapt our investing to the way the market is rather than trying to make the market adapt to the way we want it to be. Well, that's not going to make anyone feel better who's already missed, you know, a 200 percent pop in NVIDIA or, or whatnot. Julie, I, I'll just ask that same question to you. I know you often like to look for quality names and kind of idiosyncratic plays, but I can't imagine you piling into to one of these semi AI plays. But but maybe that's where the market is. Yeah, no, I, I think for us, we're long-term investors and our average hold period is five years, but we've owned things for literally decades. What we're trying to find are these businesses that can compound over time. And I think they exist not just at the large cap level, right? What is happening in big tech is just being able to capitalize on an, an important trend in the environment. But if I think of a you know small mid-cap name like a Bentley Securities, this is a company that does 
technology software for the infrastructure segments, that is a very niche focus. It's something that you know they can execute really well on and they're profitable. So I agree that it, it, you really just have to be very choosy in your businesses and find ones that are durable and competitively protected. So I, was it Bentley that you said? I uh, just want to make sure we show the, the correct company. But I, I guess just to build on that then, um, do you wait for the market to pull back? I mean, are do you think overall valuations are, are too high or do you feel, you know, especially the way that things are trading, I mean, do you feel comfortable um, still being able to find stocks at these levels? Well, you know, I think in, in small and mid cap land, you're, you're seeing valuations that are kind of some of them are back to 2008 levels. So there actually are interesting opportunities throughout. What's interesting is it's become, at least in the small and mid cap land, it's become much more of a stock pickers market where instead of the narrative driving stocks broadly, you're seeing fundamentals come into play. And so businesses that are maintaining or raising their guidance are doing very well and businesses that are having to retrench a bit are, are really getting punished. So, you know, as an active manager, this has been a great time for us to focus on quality because those are tending to get rewarded right now. Yeah, Bentley's like a $15 billion company, up 30%. I mean, it's like bigger than American Airlines at this point. It's not a, not exactly a micro cap. Uh, it's an under the radar one for sure, though. We'll leave it there. Appreciate your time uh, to both of you today. Thank you. Julie Beal and Oswald DeModoran. Coming up, a shocking turn for Dollar General, which has now reversed back near its pandemic lows on pace for its worst day ever after slashing its forecast following a miss on profit, revenue, and same-store sales. Is the worst now priced in or not? We'll dig into that ahead. Plus, crude coming off its worst month in a year and a half. Why is the so-called commodity super cycle stuck in the mud? Goldman's global head of commodities research, Jeff Curry, is here with his latest outlook. And as we head to break, here's a look across the markets. Even the Russells are positive today of 1.1%. NASDAQ still the strongest of 1.2%. S&P 4219, Dow's up 202. The 10 years at 361. We're back after this. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back, everybody. Take a look at the markets where we see the Nasdaq leading the way up 159 points above 13,000 today. Here are some of the movers this hour. C3 AI off session lows at one point down as much as 24 percent, about half that right now. Gave some disappointing guidance for the current quarter. The forecast overshadowing a smaller than expected loss. Despite today's drop, the shares are still up more than 200 percent since Jan 1. Let's also check on advanced auto parts. Lower again after posting its worst day ever after that massive earnings miss. Shares are down 40 percent just since Tuesday, almost 5 percent today. And they're at their lowest level since 2012. Wall Street's racing to downgrade the retailer. Goldman downgrading to neutral, having its price target from 165 to 82. For more of Wall Street's reaction, go to CNBC.com slash pro. 
Now, meantime, bullish commodity investors have been frustrated for over a year now as oil prices have remained persistently lower since peaking in the beginning of the Russia-Ukraine war. And sentiment only seems to be getting worse, with crude coming off its worst month since November 2021, hanging around $70 a barrel, and recession fears not abating. But my next guest says the disconnect between strong demand and weak price action can be attributed to the, quote, great destocking. And there's still a bull case to be found in energy. Joining me now is Jeff Curry, Goldman Sachs, Global Head of Commodities Research. It's good to see you again, Jeff. Welcome. Pleasure to be here. So I heard about this this morning as well. I think it was Amrita Sen who said high interest rates are causing people to liquidate inventories. So I guess inventories are just flowing into the market. So it's not that demand has actually been that weak, she said. And maybe you can confirm that, you know, China and, and whatnot. It's actually just that supply has overshadowed that. Well, it's not a phenomenon that's unique to oil. We see it in copper, metals, in the entire commodity complex. You know, there's three factors driving this. One, higher funding costs. You can't hold a physical or a financial position. You think about cash, the cash return is five and a quarter percent risk-free. That's your competition to get somebody to hold a physical barrel of oil or a financial paper barrel of oil. Second reason are recessionary concerns. Why do you want to keep inventory around if you're concerned about a recession coming tomorrow? So we continue to destock both the physical and financial barrels. And you put it all together, it's nearly a billion barrels of destocking over the last year and a half. Um, so it's substantial. And if you look at like floating storage of Iranian barrels, sanctioned barrels that we've been waiting a decade to be discharged are being run down. So basically, the market is destocking any and everything it can get its hands on. The one thing about oil, it cannot go on, and we're getting to nearly the end of it. And what's going to happen is the physical market's going to pop. That makes the return for holding oil once again profitable, and people will likely unwind those short positions, rebuild some of the physical inventory that's being destocked, particularly on the metal side. They're, they, you're at critical levels right now. Um, and that's why we continue to be positive going into the second half of this year is this destocking just cannot keep on going. It's fascinating because other industries that got burned in the pandemic are keeping higher than normal inventory levels. And yet in crude and in metals, it's much lower than normal. What are the long-term consequences of that? More price volatility or upward price pressure? Or, or when was the last time we were in such a situation? Well, we've never been in a situation where we've seen 500 basis points of, of an increase in rates in such a short period of time from such a low level. Um, and so you think about just like what the cost of holding a, a barrel of oil is. you got to borrow the money to, to finance the position, call it 7%, and then your lost cost of cash is another five and a quarter. So you're losing nearly 13% by holding that barrel of oil. That's a very unique time period. Um, so when we think about what, what it's going to take to get somebody to hold a barrel of oil or a metric ton of copper is you need this market to start moving higher and make oil become an asset as opposed to a liability, because right now it's a liability. So ultimately, the physical market will get tight enough such that it begins to pop. You unwind those shorts, pushes it higher. Then you have more of the trend come back into the market. You know, our target is fair value three months out is $89 a barrel. We're 97 at the end of this year. Um, so if you get back up to those levels, then oil starts to become an asset again, and as opposed to being a liability. So we've been talking all about the supply picture, but what has demand been like since Jan 1, as we now should have enough data to know whether China's you know, reopening fell flat or actually contributed to still a decent amount of demand? Or, or how is that affecting the markets? Uh, Here's the stat I love to throw out. The IEA, 
has raised oil demand forecasts every single month since November of last year. Let me repeat that. Every single month since November of last year, they've taken up the demand forecast to the point that it's well over 2 million barrels per day now for this year. That's far from being a recession. Same thing with copper, aluminum, the rest of the commodities, even in places like China, demand is up. That's not showing signs of a recession. So it really has to be coming from the supply side in this whole idea of destocking, destocking government inventories, destocking sanctioned barrels, destocking paper barrels, destocking commercial barrels. We see it across the board, across all the different commodities. Um, but eventually, it has to come to an end. So the point being here is overall demand is holding up, which then exacerbates the problem of destocking. Right. Although the only obvious kind of other way this could play out is if the U.S. or the global economy weakens more than expected. Right. Yeah. And, and by the way, they've already priced in, we think, immediately 10 to $15 a barrel to the downside. So you've priced in a lot of that recession already um, through you know the position shifting. I mean, from a paper barrel perspective, you've liquidated over 250 million barrels you know, over the past month. That's a lot of oil. That's the equivalent of the SPR discharge. Last quick question with OPEC coming up this weekend. Is there a rift? Is there not a rift? Does it matter? Um, what's your expectation for what well, the group is likely to, to do know, or not I, do? I think they're caught in this same conundrum. Do they target the price or do they target the fundamentals? The fundamentals say no cut. The price says yes cut relative to their, their targets of, you know, that 80 to $85 a barrel, because that's typically when they, they, when they act. Our base case is that they will not cut. They will formalize the voluntary cuts from last April in the broader group this time around, and that means shifting around the, uh, the, the quotas, but it's probably not going to lead to substantially greater cuts. Here's a stat for you. Um, OPEC has never cut three months after announced cut when inventories are below the five-year average. So that's why you put a relative high probability that they just formalize the voluntary cuts from April um, and we get different quotas out there. But let's not discount the probability that, hey, they do do something because I know there's a high level of frustration with what's going on in the prices, particularly given the, the large short positions that are in this market. One point I want to say about the short positions is, a lot of this has nothing to do with a view on oil. They're hedging out recessionary risk because the two markets that priced in a recession were rates and commodities, equities have gone up. Sell the oil as a hedge, buy the equities, and we know what the NASDAQ's done over the last year. Fascinating. Jeff, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Putting it all together Great. for us as well. Jeff Curry joining Great. us from Goldman Sachs. Still ahead, it's best month ever for Broadcom in May, which hit a record high earlier this week. It reports after the bell today, but have NVIDIA and Marvell set the bar too high? We'll delve into that. The exchange is back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome.
Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update. The U.S. government threatening auto parts supplier Arc Automotive as it intensifies its safety probe into 67 million potentially dangerous airbag inflators. The NHTSA is ordering the company to answer questions under oath and says it will impose fines if it doesn't respond. Officials say the recall is needed because two people have been killed in the U.S. and Canada by the arc inflators, which can explode with too much force and even expel shrapnel. Spirit Airlines says it has resolved the network issue that led to widespread flight delays today. According to one flight tracking website, less than a quarter of Spirit's flights were leaving on time this morning. Spirit said it's working hard to get back to normal operations, but the airline says Spirit travelers should get to the airport early, should check into their flight and its flight status often. And a New York college received one of the largest gifts ever to an American university today. The Simons Foundation made a no-strings-attached $500 million donation to Stony Brook University on Long Island. The foundation was formed by an alumni couple, the billionaires Marilyn and Jim Simons. Kelly, back to you. It's like maybe I need to kick it up a notch for my, my donations this year. Thanks, Tyler. I'll see you shortly. See you shortly. Coming up, Dollar General on pace for its worst day ever after slashing its forecast on a profit miss. It also missed on revenue and same-store sales. What does it all say about the consumer and the economy? We'll dig into that next. Welcome back to The Exchange. The retail wreck of the day is Dollar General. Shares tanking almost 19% to a fresh 52-week low today. The bargain retailer reported only a 1.6% increase in comp sales last quarter, about half of expectations, and significantly slashed its full-year guidance. That echoes a similar guidance cut from rival Dollar Tree just last week. So if the discount retailers can't deliver good numbers in this environment, what does that say about the consumer, the economy, and this trade? My next guest is still a buyer. Let's bring in Anthony Chikumba, Managing Director at Loop Capital Markets. It's great to see you, Anthony. And you're saying... You know, they can't get no respect here. Why? What was happening? Well, I think that there are very legitimate reasons why these stocks have sold off. Um, I mean, you have to remember, it's not just that both of them missed first quarter uh, expectations and lowered their guidance for the full year, but that was on top of already reduced guidance, right? So it's sort of like a double whammy. Having said that, these are very much cyclical issues. These are not secular issues. Um, specifically, uh, inflation is still stubbornly high. Uh, and what th that is doing is that's leading to stronger uh, sales of consumable items, think food, health, beauty care items, uh, and, and, and weaker sales of discretionary items, uh, think seasonal items, and they make much higher profit margins on those discretionary items. But at the same time, they're still dealing with uh, wage inflation um, and inflation throughout the supply chain. So, But like I said, these are cyclical headwinds. They're not secular ones. But these stocks aren't acting well. And, you know, you go back to Dollar Tree last week. You say, OK, they lowered their guidance they, and, and they cited shrink, among other things going on there as well. Um, maybe that would lower the bar for Dollar General or maybe they were expected to benefit. But to have them back to back, two major declines tells you something's wrong with the whole sector or something's wrong with the consumer, especially a day after advance auto. Right. Like is is there some sort of sudden stop happening here where certain kinds of businesses are just being totally thrown for a loop in the past month or so? I think really what we're seeing is you have to remember, right, inflation is still stubbornly high. In the case of the dollar stores, also um, income tax refunds were lower by about 10 percent in the U.S. And then you also had some uh, 
increased SNAP benefits that went away. And so you're just seeing all of these headwinds. Now, the interesting thing is that their target customer, they are working. Inflation is actually much lower for blue-collar workers than it is for more white-collar ones. And, and they're seeing pretty significant wage growth, I mean, over the past couple of years. But it's just not enough, quite frankly. And to some extent, look, I'm not an economist. I'm not going to try to play one on TV. But to me, what this says is that the Fed has got to stop raising interest rates enough already. And quite frankly, I think that the Fed should consider um, lowering rates in late 2023, early 2024. Enough already. I want to put you back on camera to, for you, to have you repeat that, okay? Because, in, and we hear from the Fed, they have the beige book, they have things like this where they do want to hear from businesses. But what do you think is going to happen that it just is going to take too long to show up in their data? Because they go, well, jobless claims were fine today. You know, tomorrow's unemployment print might be fine. You know, inflation's still higher than we want. So just, you know, make the case. Those are all backward-looking indicators, right? I mean, it's like, why was Wayne Gretzky so great? Because he didn't skate to where the puck was. He skated where the puck was going. And so I just think they've got to have some foresight here. I mean, particularly given the fact that these this string of, um, you know, interest rate increases has been uh, the, the fastest pace I think that we can that anyone can really remember. And it, and it really is having an impact. It's in, impacting consumer confidence. It's impacting, um, you know, interest costs, right? I mean, one of the reasons that uh, Dow General's earnings were down was because they paid 15 cents a share more in interest expense. And that's because of higher interest rates. So they've got to look at the full picture. And they've also got to think about where the puck is going, not where the puck is right now. So interesting. So let me ask you, I'll play devil's advocate to the argument that we're making and say, OK, well, what about Chewy? You know, what about Nordstrom? What about Abercrombie? What about these pockets of strength, even among retail that we are still seeing? Well, the thing you have to remember is that, look, does the rising tide lift and, and lower all boats? Absolutely. But they're all, you always have to think about the company-specific issues. But like you said, you know, Dollar Tree just had bad numbers. Dollar General is just have, is having bad numbers. Advanced Auto Parts, train wreck. Foot Locker, train wreck. I mean, how many of these train wrecks do we have to see? So, look, I can't speak specifically to Chewy or those other companies. I don't cover those companies. But just because there are some outliers does not mean, oh, what the Fed's doing is working great. Because it's not. And we're seeing it in these numbers. Quick final coda to all of this, because I just remembered we came into this saying, you know, hey, maybe you should still buy the stock here. Why then buy the stock here? I mean, why not wait for for this kind of looming event that, and, and mistake that they're making to get more fully priced into these shares? Very, very fair question. Look, a, a couple of things. First off, I think that trying to time the stock market, it's its a loser's errand. It never really works. I mean, when you see a stock that is significantly off of recent highs and is trading at a valuation that's significantly lower than historical levels, probably a good time to, you know, to buy that stock, assuming, like I said, that you think the fundamental story is still very much intact. The other thing is that, um, you know, look, once the Fed starts starts lowering rates, these stocks are going to be off to the races. In other words, you're not going to have to necessarily wait for the fundamental improvement in the performance before the stocks start to work. So I would I would highly advise against trying to time these stocks. All right. Anthony Chikumba with Loop Capital. Great to have you on today. Thank you so much. Anytime. Still ahead, we've seen blockbuster beats and guidance from NVIDIA and Marvell so far. The big question is whether Broadcom can do the same when they report after the bell today. Short-term options see the stock moving 9%. We'll get you the setup into the print next. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. The hottest thing in the market these days are the semi-stocks, especially those benefiting from AI. We all recall NVIDIA's huge beat last week and their sharply higher guidance helped the shares jump 24% to briefly cross a trillion dollars in market cap. 24 hours, similar story with Marvell, surging 32% after beating on the top and bottom lines and also forecasting a big uptick in AI revenue over the next three years. So now it's Broadcom's turn. The chipmaker rallied in sympathy with its peers last week, but is the bar now too high as it gears up to report? That's the subject of today's Tech Check with Deirdre Bosa. Where is the bar, Deirdre? It is so high, Kelly, we can't even see it. So that's what Broadcom is essentially walking into today. Let me just tell you how how high that bar is. Look at the stock action year to date, but also over the last month, one Wall Street firm called its surge parabolic because it's just investors wanting to jump on this sort of FOMO generative AI hype cycle. Can it deliver? I mean, that's a good question because this is a compelling AI name, but it's not as obvious a play as an NVIDIA. But then again, nobody really comes close to NVIDIA, which makes the GPUs that are so popular for this shift. What Broadcom has going for it is it partners with a lot of the big tech companies that are going to be making their own AI chips. So maybe, Kelly, you want to call Broadcom AI adjacent, so not quite as obvious as an NVIDIA with a very high bar to clear. Um, Mizuho actually this morning had an interesting concept of an AI tourist investor. They think that they're getting something that is sort of an AI pure play. But when you look into Broadcom's financials, it actually still gets a lot of its revenue from some of those slower growth end markets like networking as well as software and storage. Um, So how is it going to play with those investors that think they're getting more of a perp? pure play, but may not, may have to wait a little bit longer for that AI shift to become more obvious and and bleed through in the numbers. That's a great point. Wayne Branch this morning was also saying, you know, maybe Salesforce is indicative of the fact that just because you mention artificial intelligence doesn't mean your stock is going to benefit. And I'm not saying Broadcom doesn't have a legitimate business there, but, you know, do investors want to hear more, more detail, more granularity, more, you know, more dollars? Yeah. And that's exactly what NVIDIA did, right? It said that this shift isn't just happening in the future, it's happening right now. And they're going to be booking the dollar and dollars and cents that show that it's happening right now. And that is a high bar for basically anyone else to achieve except NVIDIA because it is the picks and shovels of this shift. We've talked about this before, Kelly, a lot over the last few weeks. But, you know, the chip makers are really at the first phase of this generative AI shift. So over the coming weeks and months, we're going to find out who's really there and who isn't. And earnings gives us a good view of that. But even there was some cold water thrown on Marvell. I mean, it ha- it's anticipating booking those gains on the back of this AI shift. But it's not quite there yet in the same way that NVIDIA is. You could look at other aspects of Broadcom, though. It's operating margins that are superb, above 60%. That's reason to buy. But again, we go back to that idea of tourist investors, AI tourist investors. Are they buying it just for the AI or are they interested in other things like those slower end markets that are doing pretty well too? Absolutely. A lot of turnover in these shares lately. Deirdre, thank you. We look forward to seeing more in those results tonight. Deirdre Bosa. Seal ahead, tomorrow's big jobs report could be the next big market event. And as always, ahead of that, Recruiter.com's Evan Sohn joins us with what they're seeing and how that could be setting us up for tomorrow. Stay with us.
Welcome back to The Exchange. The U.S. labor market showing some resilience this May. Private payrolls up by 278,000, well above expectations. That was according to the payroll processing firm ADP this morning. But they did note that the job gains were fragmented and concentrated in the leisure and hospitality industries. Meantime, the number of people who applied for unemployment benefits or jobless claims ticked up slightly to 232,000 last week, but was actually still below estimates. Continuing claims up as well, suggesting it may be taking people longer to find their next job. For more on what all of this means for the labor market ahead of tomorrow's big jobs report, let's bring in Evan Sohn of Recruiter.com. Evan, it's great to see you again. Welcome. Great to see you, too. Give us, I mean, I did get a glimpse here, and, and there's no kind of like sudden, you know, deceleration or acceleration. <laughs> we're, we're still kind of range bound, and maybe that explains why the market is. Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree with ADP's numbers and what the economists are saying. Um, set, recruiter overall recruiter sentiment ticked down from 3.5 last month to 3.3. So it's certainly not as exciting. Uh, we also saw that the increase in salaries only reported by 42% of the recruiters. So we're not seeing big giant, big giant salary increases either. And that was really in the 40 to 80,000 salary band and the 80 to 100,000 dollar band. The other thing that was really interesting is that the in-person roles, as you see on the screen, overtook a hybrid and remote. Uh, in-person, hospitality, leisure, healthcare is actually up again. Uh, so we're really seeing that. The other thing that's really interesting to sort of counter this is that when it came to candidate sentiment, candidate sentiment also ticked down. And candidates, uh, as reported by the recruiters, their first priority was compensation, far and away compensation. So they're leaving a job to make more money and they're taking a job to make more money. But if the, if the salaries aren't increasing enough, they're not going to take that. Huh. So if you look at last month's numbers, you saw quit rates uh, tick down and hiring rates tick up. And I think that's probably in line with what's going to happen now as well. So is it a significant moderation in compensation? Because, you know, obviously that's going to be under close scrutiny by the Fed. Yeah, I, I don't think it's significant. You know, 42 percent of the recruiters reported salary increases, but the increases were really in that 40 to 80 thousand dollar band. So it's not these significant salary increases. Again, I think it's the, the it's the hospitality, the travel, the healthcare roles that we're seeing, as opposed to the business services and the IT roles that are probably seeing the tick downward in terms of overall salary. Yeah, and and so you know we were kind of bubblicious in the labor market a year ago. Um, where are we today? Are we back to quote unquote normal? Is it is it worse or slower than normal? What do you think? Yeah. So first off, quit rates are are down from last month. You looked at the Jolt report. But they're still 8% higher than they were pre-pandemic. Uh, we still, 3.8 million people quit their jobs in April. Over 6 million people were hired in April. So these are still very, very large numbers of movement that's going around. It's certainly not the great resignation. It's not the great reshuffling. It's, I think, being more concerted or being more controlled in the decisions that people are making. I know there's this, there, or there's a, uh, there could be a recession coming. I need to make more money. I'm going to be careful about moving a job. I'm not going to be quitting as fast. I think hiring also is, is happening. It's happening a little bit faster than it was happening before. We're seeing more hiring taking place now. And that would really bode well for industries where they're in that forty dollars to $80,000 range where I could actually hire in more volumes. But if the sentiment is down on the recruiters, that would say it's not as exciting. You know, it's not as prolific hiring as it was certainly uh, a year ago. Yeah. And uh, it was, I thought it was, you know, medical health care always in demand, but there was actually a little bit of a decline in travel and tourism uh, and that sort of thing. A little bit surprised there, too. So every now and then there's a little bit of a blip. And then when the report comes out, I'm like, you see, we called it. Right. So it's uh, always interesting to see how it looks. Yeah. Evan, thanks for your time and for joining us today. We appreciate it. 
Thanks so much, Kelsey. Evan Sohn, tomorrow morning, 8.30 a.m. Eastern Sharp. We will get that jobs report. Uh, although, I don't know, maybe it'll be non-event now that we've seen jobless claims and all the rest of it. Thanks for joining us here on The Exchange. That does it for now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.